Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on the Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. Well, Venture, it's good to be together today. Uh, I want to welcome all of you that are here, maybe those that are visiting with us. We're glad to have you. And especially want to greet those who are watching online. Uh, it is always good. I'm so thankful for the technology every week. On top of our, our normal attendance here, uh, on YouTube alone, there's about 500 that view it every week. And then over the course of the next couple of weeks, more than that. And uh, so if you're watching at home or watching this week or listening in your car, we're thrilled to have you apart. Glad to be able to extend what Venture does, not only in this campus, but around the world. And I'm thankful that you're jumping back in where we are because we're jumping back in the book of Romans. And so if you've been part of the Venture family, we, we've spent a lot of times going through Romans one through eight. And this week we're starting in Romans chapter nine. It's kind of a three chapter excursus. It's kind of three chapters where Paul's gonna be answering some key questions. And, and I'll just go ahead and let you know today, Romans nine, one of the most debated passages in all the Bible. Some people would see it very controversially. So as I say that, some of you are kind of leaning in, you're like, oh. And Romans nine in it, he's gonna cover some topics and some things that frankly, I'll just tell you right now, probably will make you a little uncomfortable in places, but that's okay. That's okay because as, as we look at it, we see it's all part of God's gospel. And if you weren't here for the first eight chapters, I encourage you go back. It's such a great part of the Bible, but in it, Paul is just laying out the gospel, this good news. And for the first three chapters, he tells basically all of us need the good news because all of us are sinners. Doesn't matter if you're a pagan person, if you're a religious person, if you're a moral person, even if you're Jewish, as he writes a Jewish audience that was part of the church, all of us need the gospel because there's nobody right with God. Not one person. And then in four and five, he, he delivers that great good news that because of God's grace, because God was the one that initiated, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And, and so he extends to us the opportunity that through faith, not through any work that we do, but through faith, we can receive that gift. And he, and he walks us through what that means to be justified, to be declared right with God, that you're forgiven for all time. And then in six through eight, he tells us, okay, if you've been justified, what does it mean to live this out? What does it mean to be sanctified? What does it mean to look more like Jesus? And we walked through that with six, seven, and eight. And in eight, he, he unlocked for us, the key to it is the Holy Spirit who is changing us and is working in us. And, and we finished at the end of uh, Romans eight with this marvelous passage. He says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so when he says that word called, his audience might say, what do you mean God called? And so he unpacks it. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. So he's describing salvation here from God's perspective and he uses some terms, I told you some debate around these passages. He uses some terms that some people are uncomfortable with. I mean, when, when he starts all the way back, those whom he foreknew, he's talking about eternity past, before anything existed. 
those whom he knew, and then he predestined, he had a plan for them. And in that plan, everyone he predestined, he called, called them to himself. And everybody that he called was justified, was forgiven by God. And everybody that was justified ends up glorified, which I love that part of the chain. Because if you've received that justification, you go, oh man, I'm gonna get there. God's promised it. But, but as I walk through this part of it, maybe as you hear even some of those terms, depending on your background, it can make you kind of uncomfortable. And, and here's where discomfort comes from. As, as we're trying to wrestle with how scripture presents God, that he's a sovereign God in control of everything. But also scripture presents that we have a free will, that we are culpable for our decisions in that. And, and so as, as you try to make those two things work, wait, how do you have a God that's in complete control, but we're not robots? And, and we know this in simple choices. I mean, like usually I, I pull up and say, who chose my socks today, me or God? But you can't see my socks today. So let me switch it. Who's responsible for these skinny legs? Me or God? Now I can say, you know, God, you created them. And God could say, yeah, but you skip leg day all the time. As you, as you wrestle, not just in theology, I mean, if you get into quantum physics, they wrestle with what is predestined and what is influenced by choice in it. And when you come to scripture, depending on your background, you probably lean one way or another. And so among Christians and among churches, you, you kind of have these two different poles, two different stools, if you will. And, and on one side of it, and the passage today, by the way, is really gonna lean into this side of it. We have a sovereign God who has a sovereign plan from eternity past, and he's executing it according to his will. But then you go over to this side of it, and yeah, but we were created with free will. We have culpable choices. He gives the offer of salvation, whosoever will in that. And depending on background, some people, you know, I grew up in a, a church that was, it wasn't Presbyterian, but leaned that way. So I grew up very reformed. Uh, and so, you know, especially when I was younger, I read all the works of Calvin and, and was a systematic theology major. And so if, if you grew up Presbyterian or from a reformed background, reformed Baptist background, you're very comfortable with this one. In fact, you're, you'll love the passage today. You'll be like, yes, preach it. We don't talk about it enough. If on the other hand, you grew up maybe Methodist, or you grew up free will Baptist or Pentecostal or assembly of God. It was much more emphasis from this side. And, and so as we come to those passages, I, I always remember back when I was in seminary, when I was in seminary, I loved systematic theology. That was my major. And I was in a lot of the classes with it. And uh, I remember there was this one guy one year and he was in a lot of my classes. He was a systematic theology guy and he wasn't part of my group of friends. We had a real close group of friends. In fact, I got a seminary buddy in town today, so I'm thrilled to have him here with me. But uh, we had a group of friends, he wasn't one of them. And for some reason, this guy bugged me all the time. When he would talk, it just it like, kind of got on my nerves. You, you ever had somebody like that? And one day I was sitting there kind of grinding, he's over there and I didn't know, I didn't even know the guy. And I, I was kind of asking myself, what is it about that guy that bugs me? And in that moment, it was like God said to me, you don't like him because he's smarter than you. <laughs> and I laughed and I was like, oh, come on, God, let's be serious. And then I realized, oh, crud, that is the reason. I thought, am I that petty? 
And so after class, I, I went over to him. I was like, hey, we don't know each other, but you, you want to grab a cup of coffee? And he's like, yeah, sure. I, I really don't have a lot of friends. I'm a commuter student coming in some. And so we would regularly, about once a week during that semester, go get a cup of coffee. And, and the guy really was brilliant. I mean, I love picking his brain and we could talk about different things. And I'll never forget the day we, we started talking about these issues of election and sovereignty and all that. And remember, I came from this background, so I just assumed, I was like, well, of course you're reformed, aren't you? I mean, I'm sure you love Calvin. And, and he said, well, no, actually, I find myself more agreeing with Arminius, more the free will side. And the first comment I said was, you're too smart for that. And he's like, oh, well, that's a very telling statement. <laughs> and his point is we would debate it and we, we never reached a point where we go, oh, we totally agree. But, but he would say, you know, you've come from a background where you start with these passages and then you got to explain these. But this is the basis of your system. He said, I've come from a background where we start with these passages and then we, we've got to address those and explain them. But as you look at it, instead of being a point of division, how do we come together and we look in these ways that no matter which of these that maybe you're coming from, and so maybe you come from a background or maybe you're not churched at all and you look at it and you go, man, I don't know what you're wrestling with. I promise you spend much time with God at all. You wrestle with the fact that he's a sovereign God. He's enacting in ways that I'm responsible. So let me just say at the outset, Romans 9 is, is really going to live in this space a lot of how is this sovereign God acted in salvation. Doesn't do it to the exclusion of those passages. But our discomfort should not be a reason that we don't allow ourselves to maybe be stretched in it. Shouldn't the Bible make us uncomfortable in ways? If we're talking about a truth system that's outside of us, that's been revealed by God. Now, all of that said, I need you to turn in your Bibles. I need you to turn to Romans chapter nine. No matter if you're visiting or you're here, we've got blue Bibles in front of you. I, I want everybody to have a Bible out in front of them or have your phone, Romans nine. If you're using the blue Bible in the room, it's page 1,123, page 1,123. I say that because there's some deep concepts that you, you need to read it as we go through it. And then secondly, there's statements you're not gonna like today. And I want you to know that they were made by Paul and not me as you read through this. And so Romans chapter nine, and as you're turning there, basically Paul's gonna take three chapters. He needs to answer the question, if God has this unbroken chain of salvation, if those whom he predestined and he foreknew and he called and he justified, if that's God's plan with it, what happened to the Jewish people? because I thought they were God's chosen people. And so you look at Israel, and especially in Paul's time, Israel as a whole had rejected Christ. And so Paul's gonna wrestle with these questions with it. In fact, the first question he's gonna wrestle with is, so did God's promises fail specifically when it came to the Jewish people? Read with me, starting in verse one. Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience spares me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul says, man, I love the Jewish people so much. 
I would be willing to be cursed for their sake if I could. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. So he, he says they had every advantage. I mean, they had, they were the, the calling, they had the covenants, they had the law, they had the prophets. He said they had the greatest advantage of all. Christ himself, the Messiah, came from the Jewish people. And so as you see all those advantages, look at verse six then. The question then is, did God's promises fail? Paul says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. And here's why. For not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So, so he's saying within national Israel, not all of them are part of that remnant part of the group that have been chosen by God in it. And he's gonna give two examples of choice just within their history, just to show this, that, that part of their history, they're, they're used to recognizing, yeah, God made a choice in the past. Look at the choice, look at the first one. The, the first one is God's choice between Ishmael and Isaac. And he says, not all are children of Abraham because of his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And so he says, if you just look back at Israel's history between the two children that Abraham, so being of Abraham's seed is not enough in and of itself because he had two sons. And later Abraham had even more sons, but two sons in that time between Ishmael and Isaac. And he said, I chose Isaac to be the child of the promise. He, he's going to take it a step further. Here's another example. Verse 10, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So he says, let's take it a further choice. You've got two children of the line of Isaac and while they were still in the womb, before they had ever done anything, so it's not based on one was good and one was bad. In fact, if you read through the stories, Jacob's no better than Esau. So it's not based on works. But in the womb, God made a choice of Isaac. And, and as you hear that, and probably one verse that gives us great discomfort. I mean, you look at that verse again in verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Now, as I read that, let me make sure I'm clear because he's not saying he's got this loathing hatred toward Esau in that way. This is a Hebrew idiom of choice. And so what he's talking about is he did make a choice of one over the other. But he's not saying we're supposed to have active hatred toward Esau or any people in that. Uh, Jesus does the same thing, by the way. 
Jesus uses the exact same idiom. Look, look at it. He says, if anyone comes to me, and notice what Jesus says, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, is Jesus calling us to actively hate our parents, our spouse, and our children? No, that doesn't match any of the rest of scripture. But he is using the same idiom here that Jesus is saying to each one of us, you do have a choice. Are you gonna choose me over anyone else? Even your own life. And so we come back to Romans nine and within this passage, Paul is saying that God made a sovereign choice in his calling. Now, as I say that, let me just make sure we're clear with it. And, and just summarize at this point, now I'm gonna use actually the points of a pastor who taught in the Bay Area for years, Ray Stedman. And many people were influenced by Ray Stedman's ministry at Peninsula Bible Church in that. Stedman says uh, these words. He says, at this point, here's, here's what you can take from these terms. One, salvation is never based on natural advantages. It's not like somebody has a natural advantage of your race or anything else that you get saved based on that. This passage shows that. Secondly, salvation is always based on a promise that God gives. So it's based on God's plan and promises. This is why we're exhorted in scripture to believe the promises of God. It includes in some mysterious way our necessity to be confronted with those promises and to give willing and voluntary submission to them. Third principle, and, and notice this, salvation never takes note of whether we're good or bad. It's not that God just says, well, I'm gonna save good people and I'm not gonna save the bad. It, it notes we're all bad. Remember that Romans three? None of us are righteous, not one. And so this is what was established here. The children were neither good nor bad, yet God chose Jacob and passed over Esau. All right, as, as I stop in that moment, I'm gonna let you settle with it. Remember, I told you it's gonna make you a little uncomfortable. That's okay. There's places where scripture does, but it also probably produces in you, you go, okay, I'm hearing you say that, but this raises some more questions for me. And Paul is well aware of your questions, by the way. He, he's had this conversation a lot of times. He's talked to people about it and he knows where they struggle with it. And so he, he'll end up asking the questions for us. The next question then that comes out though is, is God unjust in his choices? I mean, the fact that he chose. And, and this feels, Wrong. It just doesn't feel like justice that, that somebody got chosen, somebody did. Read with me, verse 14, as he continues. He said, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? So Paul's asking that very question. And he says, by no means. Meganoito, no way. Come on, man. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, again, it uh, is a hard answer, but it's a direct answer. So when we look at God and we go, God, are you just to do this? Notice Paul says, well, wait a second, let's step back for a minute. And, and notice he doesn't answer it around justice, he answers it around mercy. 
He says, have you been unjust? Is there injustice here by you choosing? And then Paul answers, go, wait a second. You're accusing God of injustice for showing mercy to any. See, remember, we go back to the people that he's dealing with. If God acted in pure justice, no one would be saved because none of us deserved it. Remember, nobody's righteous. And so, so he says, you can't come to him because he's given mercy to some and say, you're unjust. Because if he operated in pure justice, th- then none of us would get mercy. But out of his grace, he extends mercy to us, to those that have received it. And, and he uses that line, he says, you know, I'll raise up who I will, I will harden in that. One of the things you, you need to be sure of though, anytime you see hardening in scripture, God never makes someone decide something they didn't want to decide. He never comes along. So Pharaoh's case, he says, harden Pharaoh. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. They did the same kind of magic in that day. And Pharaoh's heart remained hardened so that he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. God said he was going to do this, but Pharaoh made a choice in that. I love how uh, Leon Morris puts it. He says, nowhere in scripture does it say that God hardens those who had not first hardened themselves, who had not made that choice. He gives them over to that choice. That's what we saw in Romans chapter one. What can be known about God is plain. Let's talk about all people. He's shown it to them, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature. They've been clearly perceived since the creation of the world, the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. He says, every person's without excuse. Nobody's gonna be able to come along and go, well, God, you hardened me. God, you forced me. God, you made this decision for me. No, we all made this decision. Paul says, all of us chose it. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And so even as we wrestle with God's sovereign choice of extending mercy, we can't accuse him, Paul says, of being unjust. The fact that he extended mercy to any is a sign of his love and mercy. Now, that probably doesn't settle the questions for you though. If you're like me, I I hear that and I go, okay, Paul. But that actually raises another question for me. If God chooses, then why does he blame us at all? Why does he hold us culpable in that? Read with me, starting in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? I mean, I mean, if he's gonna do his thing, then why does he find fault? Look how he answers in verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? The, the, the first thing out of the gate, Paul just says, wait, let's stop for a minute and just recognize who you are and who he is. He's the molder, he's the creator. And we are those who've been molded. So, so there's a little bit of positioning in that. And then, then he continues. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order that 
to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says it in Hosea. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they are called my sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. So the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts has not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So he's describing this situation where he says the, the potter and the clay analogy, that of that he has his choice to mold who he will. Now, let me be clear on this, because this is where I, I would really disagree with Calvin and some of the other reform scholars who taught a double predestination. That God not only predestined some to salvation, but from eternity past, he predestined those to damnation. And, and the reason I would disagree, and I'm not alone, there's other reform scholars, not just Freewood, but reform scholars who would disagree in that. Uh, Barnhouse was one of the great pastors who taught on it. Stedman is another one. I told you about him who, who looked to it. And, and, and here would be the difference. It's not as if God came to this innocent clay. So you're picturing God and there's this innocent neutral clay and he decides in the clay, well, I'm gonna mold some to salvation and I'm gonna mold some to damnation. It's not talking about God as creator. It's talking about God as moral governor. So you gotta remember the clay itself, the clay itself is already damned. All of us are sinners. But if God chooses out of that pool of sinners to save those whom he will, he does it in his mercy. Listen how Stedman puts it at this point. He says, so you see, God is not shutting us away and not giving us a choice. It is his grace that reaches out to us. And without it, no one would ever be saved. The whole race would be lost. God's justice would allow the race to be lost, but God's mercy reaches out to save many among us. That is his sovereign choice, and that's where we leave it. We see him in that choice in it. And, and, and I know these issues, it's hard. I get asked a lot, and, and like I said, I was a systematic theology major. I, I like studying these things, but I also think we get lost in, in some ways. And so often when I get asked about election and salvation and how it all works, hey, here's, here's Lundy's parable. This is Tim's parable, write it off for what it will. Some parables work, some don't, well, in this. But if I were to describe this, this choosing of this in election, I want you to picture, if you will, the worship team today. We had an awesome worship team, didn't we? But if after service this afternoon, they decide to go on a rager and they're gonna hold up every convenience store and liquor store all the way down Camden as far as they can until they get caught. And so they leave here, they gather together and all of them decide to do it. And they go to 7-Eleven and they rob it for everything and they just start working down the line, hit the liquor store right next to it and, and go with it until they're caught. And all of them decided to be a part. So they're all guilty, by the way. None of them are innocent. And they're taken to jail. And in my mercy, I go down to the jail and I see the group of them there. And I say to the jailer, I, I, I wanna set them free. What does it take? And the jailer looks at me and says, a million dollars. I say, a million dollars for one of them, a million dollars for all of them, a million dollars for all of them. For one or all, same price. 
And so I pay the million dollars. Obviously, this is a fantasy at this point, do you know? You might believe the worship team would do that, but I don't have a million dollars. But uh, so I pay the million dollars and the jailer opens the door, yells into the jail, you're all free to go. The debt's been paid. Now, the problem with these guys though, they're all, there's a huge TV on the wall and they're watching the TV. It's playoff time, Warriors are on. So everybody's watching the game. They ignore it. Not a one of them goes out. Nobody chooses to. So in my mercy, I call into the jail and I go, Shep, Shep. Finally, Shep looks up and he turns around. He says, the door's open, I'm free. And he walks out. Then I go, hey, Charlie. Charlie, Charlie looks up, realizes he's free, walks out. Rachel, I do that, but I don't call all of them. And everyone who stays in there stays by their choice. And everyone who came out did so because in my mercy, I called to him. Now, if you're breaking down the story, for some of you, especially that are five-point Calvinist, you pretty recognize pretty quickly in my story, I don't believe in limited atonement. In other words, I don't believe that Christ only died on the cross for those who would be saved. I, I think when Christ died, he died for all, and it's a free will offering to all in that. But I do believe it's the act of God and his sovereign calling. And maybe even you hear that story and you go, yeah, Tim, even in your story, why did you not call all of them? And that's that place as we come to this point in scripture, as we come to each of these things, there's a part of it as humans, we look at it and go, I don't fully understand God's plan. But hear me, I cannot resent him for the mercy that was shown because none deserved it. In fact, as you come to this passage, it's interesting to me when Paul's summarizing at the end with it, ultimately what happened with the Jews? Ultimately, why were they not saved? Look what he says in verse 30 through 33. He says, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. They didn't have faith. But if it was based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. What Paul says in, in this moment then is, why did they not? Because they didn't have faith. They didn't make a choice to. Notice he doesn't end this whole passage. He's been talking about what God did, but he comes to the summary point when it's their perspective, when it's an individual person, he looks at them and says, anybody who doesn't believe, it's because they didn't believe in Jesus. He says they, they struggle with the stumbling block. And he's talking about 1 Corinthians. He says, for Jews demand sign, Greeks seek wisdom. We have preached Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, those who God have called in it, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He, he says the cross is a struggle point for Jews and Gentiles. For the Jews, they struggled because they look at the cross and they said, anybody who dies on a tree is cursed. It's a stumbling block. And they, Paul says, yeah, but you've got to believe he died for you. Yes, he was cursed for you. The, the Gentiles look at it and they go, oh, the cross, that's foolishness. You really believe somebody died on a cross and rose from the dead and that somehow makes you right with God? I mean, even today, that, that's the first thing people kind of say, that's, that's cute, that's foolish, I'm glad you have your little belief. It's exactly what's going on here. Paul says, it's the same no matter what perspective you're coming from. At the end of the day, you've got to make a choice. What are you gonna do with Jesus? What are you gonna do with the cross? What are you gonna do with what he's done for you? And, and yes, we, we wrestle with, okay, how does that fit with what God did from sovereignty and, and, and my choice in that? But as you, you summarize it, let me give you just a few conclusions in this because I, I don't want us to miss some of these key points. First one, the Bible clearly teaches God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Deal with it. They're both there. And, and, and so instead of just coming to it and going, well, I only like these passages and I kind of ignore those and I pretend like that doesn't exist. Once you start doing that with the Bible, you can start doing it with any parts. And so of course it's gonna stretch us. Of course it's gonna be beyond us. And you're gonna deal with this in all different ways. You deal with it when you come to prayer. When I go to pray, I'm praying to a sovereign God. Wait, God's in control, he knows what he's gonna do. Why am I even praying? Because he's gonna do what he's gonna do. I pray because he commanded me to pray. And guess what he actually told me? He told me that my prayers actually have an impact on what he's gonna do. You go, Tim, how does that work? I don't know, I just obey. Because they're both there. They're both part of my growth. Look what Paul says in Philippians 2, I love this passage. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. He says, you've been obedient. Look at this command. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You work out your salvation. Which of these stools does that verse apply to? Well, it'd be this one, free will. You need to work it out. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I go, yeah, it's up to me. Then look what he says the very next line. Well, for it is God who works in you both to will and work his good pleasure. Well, actually God was the one doing it. You go, well, which one is it? See, I think we love positions because we get very comfortable in positions. And I think God doesn't mind leaving us in a place of tension and some mystery. Now, as I say that, some of you go, uh, if I can't understand it, I'm not gonna believe it. Well, let me just say, second point, the truth of God's word is not based on our ability to comprehend it. God's truth is not based on our ability to comprehend it. It, it, it. By definition, if he is God, wouldn't he be bigger than our ability to comprehend? All right, let me take it in a simple math theorem. Uh, if you have a, a child, and, and you can look at it in developmental, especially early childhood, there's a certain age when children move past concrete thinking and they can move to conceptual thinking. But until that time period, it's hard for them to really grasp conceptual concepts. 
And so, so math principles, they take a, the Pythagorean theorem. Let me put it up here. Pythagorean theorem. If you want to know the, you know, the length of the hypotenuse in a right triangle, you, you use this theorem. Some of you are like little kids. You've already lost me with it. But uh, it, it's pretty simple. A squared plus B squared equals C squared. And, and so if I were to take a little child and go, hey, I, w- I want to teach you this theorem. So A squared plus B squared, they would stop me and spend on their age because remember, they're concrete thinkers. They're like, wait, what are you talking about A plus B? These are letters, not numbers. They go, well, A squared. And they go, that's not a square. A square is a block. I go, yeah, but the letter represents a number. And they're like, no, no, no. A is A and a number is a number. Now, Now hear me. Their inability to process this equation. Does it make the truth of this equation wrong? Or is it just beyond them? And as they grow, they'll grow in capacity to understand. Guys, in the same way, and and know as we wrestle, and I love to wrestle and I love to read it and I love to debate it, but there'll be parts of this, of a sovereign God who's outside of time and space, who's had a plan since eternity past, who created beings who have the ability to make choice and are culpable for those choices and things that we do actually impacts our future. There's a part of that, of making it work together that's beyond us. And that's okay. Because he's a big God. And he's not limited by our comprehension. In fact, Paul's gonna end this whole section of nine through 11 at this same place. He says, the depths and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgment, inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who gives him counsel? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. He's not limited by us. As we say that as well, our response depends on how we view ourselves and how we view God. When you come to these passages, especially if you find yourself, I mean, if I don't see myself as much of a sinner, if I deserve to be saved, then it's unjust that anyone's not. But if I really look at it and go, I never deserved salvation to begin with, but God in his mercy gave it to me. Guys, I don't understand fully why those who were not called were not called. But you know what I don't understand even more? Why would he ever call me? Because I know me. And I know what's wrong with me. And I I know he's a a big God and a good God. And and this would be one of those points. I would check yourself because you can kind of read through this and say, well, if I was God, none of us would do as well as God did. None of us would love like God did. And there's a place of embracing that. I think at this part, the mysteries of God's plan should produce humility and gratitude. You know, one of the things that grieves me, it grieves me as a pastor, that you will see, and I've seen it in churches, I've seen it with Christians, I've seen churches split over it, I've seen friendships break down, I've seen a night that was wonderful just break up over it, that you've got Christians who come at this from two different things and they end up making this this place of division 
when I look at it and I go, if there's anything that should humble us, it's this subject because it's bigger than all of us. And so the response for anybody is you come into this or you look at it, all of us should be humble before God. We should never divide with each other over this. All of us should rest in gratitude. And for some of you, I wish that would wash over you because there's another truth that comes with this. If God's in control of this plan, he's in control of keeping you a part of the plan, by the way. And some of you that live every day and you're so scared you're gonna lose your salvation or you're gonna do the wrong thing or you're gonna cross the wrong line with it, you can rest in gratitude of that unbroken chain that he declared it. If you've been justified, he's gonna get you glorified. So live in that today and rest in it. Final point I just make in it is God's sovereignty is never an excuse for failing to do what he calls us to do. His sovereignty is never an excuse for failing to do what he calls us to do. So when you look at the sovereignty of God, if maybe even this week you say, well, why should I pray about something? God's gonna do what he's gonna do. You pray about it because he actually commanded you to pray about it. And he actually told us that prayer changes things. So I'll take him at his word. Or, or maybe you look out and you go, well, I mean, if God's gonna call, he's gonna call. Why should I ever really worry about sharing the gospel? Why should I tell people about Jesus? You tell people about Jesus because that's what he commanded us to do. And not just in obedience. Here's the freedom we have. Here's the freedom this passage gives us. Here's the great news. You're not responsible for saving anyone. God is. But you're responsible for sharing with everyone because you're his mouthpiece. You're his witness. But you talk about a no-lose proposition. I get to be a part of the plan of God and I trust him with the results. But never blame his sovereignty for your inaction with sharing with others. And, and for some of you, and some of you need to hear it today, don't blame God's sovereignty for why you're not a part of the family of God. No one will ever be able to stand before God and go, well, I would have been saved, but your choice. No, God, God will look at you and just like he did with the Jews in this passage, the reason they're not a part of the family of God is they stumbled over the cross. They refused to accept Jesus. Someone told them clearly that the way of salvation and the only way of salvation is Christ's death and resurrection on the cross and they refuse to believe it. And I promise you, if you're here today and you've not accepted it, when you stand before him, he will point out days like today when you heard it and you took one more step of going, I don't believe. You know how scripture describes that? It's hardening of heart. It's stepping away. And it will be your choice that God points out. That's why Romans 9 and 10, we're gonna see next week, Paul immediately turns and says, you know what though? Today's the day of salvation for anyone, for anyone to decide. 
And some of you today, some of you need to hear this. You need to stop turning away. You need to stop hardening your heart. You need to stop taking another step and blaming God or blaming something else because the salvation that comes from Christ alone on the cross is proclaimed today and it's yours today, but you have to make the decision. Why not make the decision today? Why not today declare, as he'll say in 10, that Jesus Christ is Savior. He died and rose again. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ came so that I could be a part of the family of God. In fact, why don't you take a moment, just bow your heads where you are. I just ask everybody to just bow for a moment. And as we finish out, if you are a child of God today, could you just take a moment and just reflect and in gratitude say, God, thank you for your mercy. I didn't deserve it. If you're here today and maybe today God's saying to you, today is the day of salvation. You need that mercy. You need it extended to you. Don't harden your heart. Don't turn away from his spirit who's working in you right now. Tell him, tell him, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I know it. And it was my choices. Declare to him, Jesus, you are savior. You died and rose again for me. And I declare right now, you are my Lord. Tell him that, you are my Lord. Paul declares, if you pray that prayer, you are saved. Father, I come before you, I I thank you for just your word, how it does stretch us. I thank you for just, there's things that are so beyond us and we only get glimpses of how great you are. I, I can't fathom one day when we see you face to face, when we get to experience you even more, how you'll stretch our minds and our thoughts and our hearts. Lord, I pray this day for those of us who've known you as savior, I pray that we'd rest in the gratitude of that and just thank you for your mercy. Lord, I pray for those today who they just prayed that prayer. They prayed that you are Savior and Lord. I pray that they would know in their hearts right now, their eternity has been changed because of Jesus. And that they would live and rest and walk in that truth. Lord, I pray for anybody here who, whether they're here or listening, they're struggling with that decision. Lord, I pray you'd open eyes. I pray you'd give them courage. I pray they would not put off one more day the truth of what Jesus Christ has done for them as Savior and Lord. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc. 